If you've got your Bibles this morning, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms, Psalm number 22. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning for just a few minutes, the cross of Christ. As we approach the Easter season, what I'd like to do, and I hope that you do, is look afresh and anew at the cross, the reason that Jesus came. There's actually two sides of this story of the crucifixion. There's our side. Uh, can you raise that thing up, the screen? There's our side. You see this picture, or this cross, as the screen raises. People wear little necklaces and jewelry. They make jewelry out of, you know, cross. A lot of people use the cross for uh, decoration in their home. Uh, we put them all around the church. We sing about the cross as we did this morning. Glorious songs. Uh, we place great uh, stones or crosses on gravestones and on tombs as symbols of hope and life. As a matter of fact, everything from our point of view of the cross seems pretty positive. That's understandable because our faith is about what Jesus did on a cross in our place. It's the cross that Peter spoke of when he wrote, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The New Testament tells us that the cross, the power, the message of the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. But I want to share something with you church. There's another view of the cross and it ain't pretty like that one. It's not a piece of jewelry that we wrap around our neck or a decoration that goes in our home. It's ugly. It's dark. And it's painful. It's the cross of Christ. You see, Jesus could see the cross from both sides. What did the cross mean to him? Sure, it meant the salvation of people, those that he loved. But it meant suffering and shame, pain, bloodshed, abandonment from by the Father. And I'm convinced that unless we understand a bit of that side of the cross, we're not likely to understand what we sing about, what we sung about this morning. Only in seeing that view as Jesus saw it will we understand the so in John 3.16. Did you ever stop and just think about that? Every one of us in here this morning probably knows that verse. For God so loved the world. What does that so mean? That's a big word there that uh, points us to the cross. God loved the world this much that He became flesh and was willing to bear the punishment of the, uh, of the whole world and take those sins upon Himself. God loved the world that much, so much, Jesus humbled Himself and became obedient unto death. Not just any death, even the death of the cross. It points to the horrible nature of the cross, the total abandonment of the cross, the sin that Jesus became on that cross so that men, women, boys, and girls could be 
saved. The Bible says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, the cross. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, the cross. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world. 1 John 4, 9, In this uh, was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know what that word propitiation means? It means a satisfaction of anger. God was angry over sin. I mean, he created man to be perfect there in the garden. We've studied about that. Man rebelled against God. Adam did it in the garden. But ever since then, each of us has chosen to rebel against God. And God cannot look upon sin. Sin makes him angry. And the only satisfaction for that anger was Jesus Christ dying on the cross. What did it take uh, for God to unleash his wrath? Jesus Christ dying on the cross. That's a dark side. Where do we go to find Jesus' view of the cross? Well, the New Testament paints us a picture of the events leading up to the resurrection and the cross right there in the middle. But really, it just kind of skims over the events of the cross. If we want to get a good picture of what the cross is and Jesus' side of the cross, the cross of Christ, then I think right here in Psalm number 22, we can get that picture. You see, on the surface, Psalm 22 is about a man suffering. It was written by David, man being persecuted. Uh, it could be David is the one that's actually writing this about something that was going on uh, in his life. But it can't be just about him because if you look down there at verse number 27 uh, of the 22nd Psalm, I want to read you some here in a minute, but I want to read you this. Listen to what it says in verse 27. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. He wasn't writing of himself there. David understood that there would never be a time when the world would bow down and worship him. So he wouldn't have said anything like that, but he would have said it about the Messiah, the one who was to come. So David was writing here about someone other than himself. Well, let's look at Psalm 22, verse number 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my rowing? Oh, my God, I will cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me, hope, make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, but there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me. They gaped open uh, upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It 
it is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword and my, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from a lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, as we look upon the cross of Christ this morning, Father, I pray that you'd help us to see it in a way like we never have before. Touch your people, O God, that we might appreciate this great gift that's been given to us. And then, Father, serve you out of gratitude, not by compulsion, but out of gratitude for that gift that you've given. And, Father, we'll praise you and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. The New Testament tells us quite a bit about Jesus, but the Old Testament really describes what the crucifixion, what the cross of Christ would look like. As a matter of fact, we can understand that by going to the New Testament and looking at just how many times uh, the writers of the New Testament used this very psalm that we read this morning. Uh, verses 1, 7, 8, 18, 31 are all referred to in the New Testament description of Good Friday or the day that Jesus was crucified. However, Hebrews 2.12 also applies verse 22 to Jesus. Uh, it tells us about the cross of Christ, the ugly side, the dark side, the side that had to be for the glorious side to take place. Well, here in Psalm 22, it's a psalm of prophecy. David lifts up his eyes and he looks down the long corridor of time and, and he sees in striking detail the crucifixion of the Messiah who was yet to come. It so paints a picture of what the crucifixion would look like that in modern times there's been people say that couldn't have been written a thousand years before uh, Jesus was born, before the crucifixion took place. I would say that the person who wrote this, David, was standing at the foot of the cross. Not, not, not literally, but figuratively, that the Holy Spirit of God had transported him to a place where he wrote down these words that so described what would take place a thousand years later. This psalm is not a person observing or reporting on an event. I believe it was literally the Lord Jesus Christ guiding the hands of David as he wrote. The psalm falls into two parts, really, or sections. The first is the description of the crucifixion. That's what I read to you this morning, verses 1 through 21. But I don't want to leave you there because the second part describes the results of that crucifixion from verse 21b through the end of the chapter. We might say that the psalm is divided between Jesus' experience on the cross and his elation then in the results of the cross. And I want to talk to you about those two parts this morning. Number one, the Messiah's experience on the cross. You see, the description in these verses leaves no doubt that the crucifixion of Christ is in view here a thousand years before he lived. I want to show you the spiritual experience from Jesus' view on his side of the cross. It's found in verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read them to you once again. My God, my God, 
Why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my ruin? Oh my God, I will cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season I am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabits the praise of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. The spiritual experience from Jesus' view. The first line of the psalm was Jesus' first words from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why did God forsake Jesus as he hung on the cross? Well, they're not words or a cry of unbelief. It's a cry of desolation. It's a cry of abandonment. These, this is the cry of one who at the, that moment in time felt the full weight of sin's penalty upon his shoulders. You and I couldn't bear that penalty. If we'd have had to bear it, I'm telling you, it would crush us never to return. But Jesus felt the full weight of the sin of humanity upon him at that moment. And God the Father, who had been in perfect union with Jesus Christ the Son from eternity past, they had been never separated. There had never been a disagreement. There had never been one single shadow of disunity between the two. At that moment, he who knew no sin became sin and God the Father turned his back on the Son and the Son hung there on that cross alone for the first time in all of history and he cried out because of that abandonment. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There was a spiritual experience from Jesus' view of the cross. What was that spiritual experience? For the first time, his soul was abandoned of God. And he did that because he loved me and you. The cross wasn't about Jesus' sin, but ours. He became our sin, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became our sin so that you and I didn't have to bear it. And I don't know about you, I like to see some sad faces out there this morning, but I want to say something. Hallelujah, praise God, he became my sin so that I didn't have to bear that sin. And that's good news this morning as we gather. You know what the worst problem in the world is? It ain't bombs going off. It ain't people going in churches and shooting people up. It ain't politicians that are leading this nation astray. No, it's the same problem that's been since the garden. Sin problem and God God dealt with that sin on Calvary's cross and it's took care of today so we can smile. Everything's going to be okay. He became sin. The words Jesus spoke from the cross are right here. He said that in Matthew 27. My God, my God. In reference here in verse number 15 uh, to his jaws being uh, dry. Uh, we can think of Jesus crying out, My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Jesus in John 19, who declared from the cross, I thirst. He thirsted so that we could be and drink the water of life freely forever and forever. You remember over in John chapter number 4, don't you, when he was talking to that Samaritan woman? He said, whoever drinks of this water that I give will never thirst again. And on the cross, Jesus cried out, I thirst. In Psalm 22, he describes it. The very last words of the psalm. Translated, it is done in verse 31, but it is finished from John 19. The reason Jesus was on the cross is here. I want you to see this this morning, church. Look at verse number three. But thou art... Holy, 
Why was Jesus on the cross? Because God is holy. That transports me back there to the book of Isaiah chapter number 6 when he walked into the temple and there was angels there that uh, were uh, crying out, were proclaiming, were praising, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Jesus cried out, my God, why, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because God is holy. That's the reason he was on the cross. God can't be in the presence of sin, so my sin, your sin must be dealt with. And Jesus took it upon himself at the cross of Calvary. We've never, even in our moments of keenest insight, began to understand the depths of Calvary. There the Lord Jesus bore in his own person. Listen to this. There he bore in his own person an eternity of the wrath of God. He, being infinite, suffered in a finite amount of time what we, being finite, would suffer in an infinite amount of time. Eternity was compressed upon Jesus there at the cross and he suffered an eternity of punishment so that you and I could live in freedom for eternity. The holiness of God demanded that. The prophet Habakkuk said, God is of pure eyes than to behold evil. And then in that moment, in that period in which Jesus actually became the sin bearer on the cross, the holy God of the universe withdrew from him, God forsaking himself. That is the essence and unfathomable depth of the cross. And it's clearly foretold right here in Psalm number 22 to paint us a picture so that we can see that the cross of Christ is horrible from Jesus' view. One is tempted to see in the psalmist phrase in the night season a prophecy of the deep darkness that was told about over there in the Gospels when Jesus was hanging on that cross. The Bible says for six hours darkness covered the land. Right there in the 22nd Psalm. Second, the emotional experience from Jesus' view of the cross. I know verse 6 through 11 kind of describes it. Uh, listen to what the Bible says. But I am a worm and no man a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God. This God who has forsaken him. Be not far from me for trouble is near for there is none to help. Do you know what? I believe it was Frederick Nietzsche, I could be wrong on this, that says he that has a why can bear any how. Now you think about that for a minute. That'll blow your mind. He that has a why can bear any how. And you know, in a sense, we're built for calamity and for tragedy. I mean, an earthquake could come today and shake this building and building could fall down and basically all of us get killed and it'd make a lot of people sad. Well, at least I hope it would. At least some people anyway. <laughs> Amen. See, you can laugh. And but pretty much the world would get on with itself in a, you know, in a few days. Tragedy strikes and we understand that. But you know what a wreck a person more than anything? Betrayal and abandonment and malevolence. Now you think about this Jesus here, we're talking about, we talked about that spiritual element, but now I'm talking about the emotional element. Here he is, he lived a perfect life. I mean, he just went around loving people. God is love, amen. And he'd 
had those disciples for three and a half years and they had watched him raise the dead, feed thousands of people with just a little bread and a few fish. They had watched him calm the storm. I mean, they had saw all of this. I mean, they said, Jesus, we're really on your side. Uh, Peter went so far as to say, I'll go with you all the way, even to death. And where do we find Jesus? Abandoned by everybody that was on his team. I'm going to tell you what. Abandonment will break a person. Not only that, we read about here, you know, where they said, uh, all they that see me laugh me to scorn. Well, you read the gospel stories. I'm not going to turn over for sake of time this morning. They were scorning Jesus, were they not? I mean, that takes me over there, right over there to the Gospels where they said, Hey, you saved others, now save yourself, big boy. Get down from that cross. That God of yours, ain't you, you put your trust in Him, now let's watch Him save you from this cross. But you see, God couldn't save Jesus from the cross. That had been the plan all along. All the way back there in Genesis chapter 3, remember? When, and when, when God had set that thing in motion and he said, yeah, uh, from the womb of a, uh, of a woman is going to come one that's going to crush the head of Satan and that thing, I'm going to deal with sin finally and forever. Well, it's happening right here on the cross. And, and you see, God wasn't going to come to his rescue, but they were scorning him saying, pray a little harder, pray a little harder. See if God will come. He was abandoned by the religious leaders that were supposed to, to, to welcome him and teach him and, and not only that the, the, the government there that you know the Roman government they were the ones that were right in the middle of that thing too I mean every single person had abandoned Jesus and he experienced that emotional loss of everyone turning against him but not only that Jesus uh, physical suffering uh, right there on the cross uh, well we know what that is all about don't we I mean I've got up here and told you many times before about, you know, just how hard it would be and just all of the uh, uh, suffering that goes into that crucifixion, and I'm not going to go in that today, but I'm going to say this. It hurt. And no one can deny pain. Amen? I mean, you can sit here and you can say something like, well, all these metaphysical things this crazy preacher gets up here and talks about, uh, I don't believe in any of that uh, stuff because I can't sense it, I can't touch it, I can't feel it. Well, I'm going to tell you what, you can't touch pain it, uh, either, but I guarantee you no one in this room or even on the face of the earth will deny that pain is real. It's real, and Jesus experienced it to depths that we can't even imagine on the cross, and he did that because he loves me and you. That's the horrible side of the cross. I know I've got to hurry. I want to get to the other side, too. You see, not only do we see Jesus' experience of the cross, but we get to see in this prophecy Jesus' elation, elation in the results of... Well, I, I want to do this. I just For time or not, I just can't go on. Look what it says here in verse number uh, uh, 12. I, I want to hit this and then I'll move on. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. The Roman government with all their power had surrounded him. They gaped upon me with their mouths. They pierced him the way a ravening and a roaring lion would pierce its prey. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. I thirst, I thirst. My strength is dried up. You ever hung on a cross? A lot of times people died just simply of exhaustion because their body dried up and withered away because they had no water hanging there on that cross. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Dog 
dogs have compassed me, those Gentiles who were in charge of Jerusalem at that time, the assembly of the wicked. Well, I don't know if he's talking about the religious leaders of the Romans. They're probably both because they were both in that assembly. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Well, read the gospel. It's right there in it. But then he goes on, But be thou not far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, from the power of the dog. And then in verse 21, we begin to see the other side of the cross, a turning point. I want to just show you a few results of the cross in this morning, and we'll close. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, he now has brethren to whom the name of the Lord can be declared. Look what it says there in verse 22. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. You see, Hebrews chapter number 2 says that Christ is not ashamed to call, the, call those who know him brethren. Because of the cross, he has brethren, brothers, sisters in Christ who are part of the family of God. Furthermore, because of his death on the cross, the Messiah rejoices in the poor being able to eat and be satisfied. Look what it says in verse 26. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. Because of the cross. What a marvelous picture this is of sinners among uh, coming to know the crucified Redeemer. Because of his death, they can eat and drink of the water of life, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and be satisfied with the knowledge of that their sins are forgiven and they can stand without fear in the presence of God, unashamed because their sin problem has been dealt with. He also rejoices in all the ends of the earth turning to him. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation as Revelation chapter number 5 tells us. He rejoices in the fact that his death will issue the final vindication of God. Look what it says there in verse 27b. Or 27. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nation shall worship before thee. That kind of reminds me of uh, Paul writing there in the book of Philippians that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, though those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have you ever confessed that? My question is today, have you confessed that? If not, confess it today. Do it voluntarily before you do it on this day, and you do it by compulsion. Every nation, all the families of the earth shall worship before him. Finally, he rejoices in the knowledge that a posterity will serve him. Each generation will have those. You know why I don't worry about the church? I read stuff all the time that these great preachers are writing about. The, the church ain't going to die till Jesus says it's over. And if every one of us forsook him today, the whole United States of America church, he'd still have a remnant. Oh, uh, Elijah was over there and he's whining and crying and he said, God, I'm the only one. And God said, shut. Now, I'm paraphrasing now. He said, shut your mouth, Elijah, and quit your whining. I've got a remnant that worships me that you don't even know about. And if every one of us turned our, brain, turned our back on the Lord, there'd be a remnant that's worshiping him and praising him and there'd be a posterity that's yet unborn. His future doesn't depend on me and you. Amen. He says right there in verse number 30 and 31, I'm going to close this morning. Listen to what it says. A seed, a posterity, a people shall serve him and it shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be 
born that he hath done this. So Jesus did not die on the cross with his fingers crossed. Hey, what am I going to do? How, what's this going to happen? What, what's the effect of this thing going to be? No, that cross that he and the Father agreed upon before the foundation of the world, that it would be effective in redeeming God's love gift. God the Father gave a gift to God the Son. What is that gift? Me. And that gift is you. And the price that he paid for it was purchased on the cross of Calvary through blood, through abandonment, through sweat, through toil, through fear, through uh, Jesus having everyone desert him and leave him. But he was willing to pay the price of the dark side of the cross cause, uh, so he could come out to the good side of the cross that you and I could be born again into the family of God. For he has done it. Jesus' last words in this song. It's the Hebrew word of the Greek word in the New Testament, tetelestai. It means paid in full. The cross was enough. There was a little boy, six or seven years old, and he was watching a movie along with his family. And it was a, uh, a passion movie about Jesus the week that he came into Jerusalem. And he had a little two-year-old sister there, and she was watching it. And she didn't really understand, you know, all that was going on. Anybody that's had two years old, two-year-old, you know, they like to watch it, but they may not know exactly what's going on on that thing. And they took Jesus, you know, and they beat him and all that they did to him. You can picture that in your mind, can't you? I hope you can. And they marched him up that hill, and, you know, the Roman soldier pierced him in his side and declared him to be dead. The little boy noticed that his little two-year-old sister was sniffling. He looked down at her, you know, because he loved his little sister, and she was crying. And, you know, with eyes of compassion, he looked down at her like only a little six-year-old boy could. And he put his arm around his little sister, and he said, Don't cry, sis. After the next commercial, he'll be back. Amen. Hey, he'll be back. <laughs> we looked at this side of the cross is not the end of the story. There's a tomb, a grave, a rock that covers that thing. But listen, just give it a couple of days. He'll be back. He'll be back. He'll be back. And all of this stuff that we've talked about this morning will be realized. And as we approach Easter, church, I want you to see. I want you to think about. I want you to ponder on. And I, I want you to, uh, to look at the dark side of the cross that there was pain and there was a price to be paid. But I want you to always keep in mind that he will be back. And we can rejoice in that. But I'm going to close with this. He will be back. What will he find you doing when he comes back? You see, the cross ought to most of all compel us. When we see what a high price had to be paid for sin, we ought to know what a great punishment there'll be for those who've not received that gift. I believe it's something like this. I'm paraphrasing. I can't remember it. But something old Charles Spurgeon said, that if any man goes to hell, let him do it over my body, kicking, screaming, holding on to his leg. I mean with claw marks in his back if need be. But don't let anyone go to hell without me trying to give them Jesus. What will he find us doing as they come?
Listen, if you're, as you stand, if you're here this morning, I've done my best to paint a picture of the cross. And the Bible simply says that, listen, a thousand years before he was born, this psalm was written that paints a picture of what the cross is going to be like, the suffering and the shame. And if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith and trust in that, listen, I'm talking about going all in, not some little profession with our mouth that doesn't then result in a change of the way we live. Because if it don't change us on the outside, it ain't changed us on the inside. Now, I know the inside change comes first. But if you've never done that this morning, listen, God stands ready this morning to forgive you, redeem you, and give you that gift of eternal life. If you'll simply by faith come and say, Preacher, I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven. I want to come into the family of God. But Christian, if it's been a while since you've praised Him for the cross, well, the day's as good a day as any. I think we ought to praise Him for what He did. If you ain't told anybody, come ask forgiveness. Say, from now on, God, with your help, I will. I don't know. God can use, uh, he can translate it from this old hillbilly's lips into your ears and speak to you. And if he spoke to you, don't you stay where you are. You come, tear yourself.